Welcome back, friends. We are going to finish up chapter, chapter 21, um, beginning at verse 9, make our way through verse uh, 5 of chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. We are looking at John's description of what the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem looks like. Uh, we last week saw in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 21, John's introduction uh, to the completion, the consummation of the kingdom, uh, the eternity coming to earth. Uh, today we're going to uh, look at John's description, a fuller description, uh, as he builds on what he said in the text so far, a fuller description of this uh, eternal kingdom. Again, we're using all that we have, human language. Uh, John is using human language. The Spirit is speaking to us through John using human language to describe something that really is um, indescribable from a human point of view. So just try to see the symbols, receive what's in the text, uh, try to be um, lost in wonder, love, and praise to God who gives us this. Uh, but know that as beautiful, as marvelous as is portrayed here in these, um, in these words, that it is even more marvelous, it's more beautiful uh, than can be described to our finite minds using a finite language. But this is the way the Spirit has led John to describe uh, this new eternal reality. Uh, just a couple sentences of review, in case you've forgotten what we talked about last week. Uh, I'm trying to help you understand that contrary to what's been popularly assumed in Christian circles in the West for the last 150 or so years, uh, we don't just live, die, and go to heaven, and that's the end of the story. That's true, uh, but there's something beyond that. There's something more marvelous, majestic than that. Uh, that the Christian community uh, and the Jewish community uh, before as we have known for millennia now, but um, somehow in the last 150 years we've become so super spiritual, uh, which is rather platonic, it's like Greek, Greek Platonism, we've become so super spiritual, uh, we have forgotten the significance of creation, the significance of our bodies in this earth, to God's redemptive purposes. And throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout all the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels and the writings of Paul and in other places, we see that the final destiny of those who are in Christ is not heaven. The final destiny of those who are in Christ is um, here on the earth. It's a new earth, earth rejuvenated, earth redeemed, earth restored, earth restored to its Edenic quality that we lost because of the fallen, fallenness of human nature. Uh, what we lost when we were expelled from the Garden of Eden will be returned to us, um, but still far greater than anything that we lost, I believe. Uh, you'll see particularly toward the end of today's text that uh, the language should, should help you go back to the Garden of Eden and see that we are going to re-enter the garden. God's redemptive work in Christ is not just to redeem our spirits, as important as that is. It's not just a spiritual redemption. It is that and more. Uh, in the Jewish way of thinking, uh, 
body and spirit are not as, as easily divided as they are in the Greek world. Uh, they really are one. And that's why the historic church has always said at death, uh, we do pass spiritually immediately into the presence of God. Uh, we go to what we've called the intermediate state. That's heaven. That's paradise. That's where we rest and we are in the full presence of God. And it's a glorious thing. It's not the final thing. Uh, there will come a time when we will experience the rejuvenation of creation and our spirits that are now in the intermediate kingdom in heaven in the presence of God will be reunited with our bodies in whatever form they may be at that point. Uh, there'll be a um, resurrection of the body which we Christians and the Jewish community before us uh, have professed. We believe it in the resurrection of the body. And for us, that language, resurrection of the body, is not just a metaphor for, for a spiritual existence throughout eternity. Uh, we believe that when the redemptive work of Christ is finished, body and soul will be reunited and all creation will be also redeemed and restored. We pray probably multiple times throughout the week for God's will to be done on earth just like God's will is being done right now in heaven that day will come one day. That's what we're seeing here in Revelation 21. Uh, after God judges uh, the evil in the world, the return of Christ happened in chapter 19. In chapter 20, we saw the binding of Satan, the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, the messianic kingdom that we hear so much about in the Hebrew Bible, uh, centered there in Jerusalem, messianic rule from Jerusalem, that thousand-year period, a symbolic period of long, a long time, that millennial kingdom of God happens. Then at the end of the millennial kingdom of God, we saw in chapter 20 of Revelation, uh, there will be the final over throw of any residual effects of evil. And then beginning in chapter 21, uh, the new heaven, the new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem comes down and engulfs the world, engulfs the, engulfs the earth, and all creation is redeemed. It's as if the intermediate state then consumes the earthly state. And God, God will be all in all at that point. So in verses 1 through 8, we saw or we heard John introduce the coming of the new Jerusalem. Um, here in verse 9, we're going to see him begin his uh, more detailed explanation. So I just pray that you can receive the gift that God is giving to us through this text and can see the beauty and let it excite your soul. Beginning in chapter 21 at verse 9. Then came, John says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We spoke last week that um, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, those are terms for the people of Jesus Christ. Uh, bride just points to uh, our purity at this point. It points to our beauty at this point. And the word wife points to our intimacy at this point with Christ. The wedding supper of the Lamb has already occurred. And uh, this, this is showing us this final, this final union between the bride, the wife, and, and Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are the wife of Christ. And uh, we see that the eternal kingdom is when we, at that point, become all that God intends for us to be in Christ. So here John is being invited. He says, come, I will show you. 
uh, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This is when John begins to receive in some detail what the new Jerusalem looks like, what the eternal kingdom looks like. Beginning again at verse 10. And this angel carried me, John, away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Uh, a lot of wonderful things happen on, happens, happen on mountains in the scriptures. Uh, here in this exalted high spirit, John is being shown the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So we're told again here at the end of verse 10 that this holy city, Jerusalem, is a gift given to us. It's not something we create. It's not something we earn. It is a gift given to us. It comes down out of heaven to us from God. Verse 11, this, this holy city, Jerusalem, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So you see the purity and the brilliance, the radiance of God emanating from the new Jerusalem. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Uh, just a few things about this text. You see these walls. Uh, usually in the ancient world, walls were symbolic or necessary for protection. We obviously need no protection in the New Jerusalem. Uh, you'll see later uh, the gates to these walls are never closed. Again, we don't need protection here, but these walls just simply show, uh, again, the brilliance and the majesty of, of this city. You do notice it's being referenced as a city, uh, so the eternal kingdom is, um, is a community. It's a city. We will be there with others. It's not just an individual private nirvana. It's, it's an experience that we share together in the presence of our God and His Christ. Uh, you saw a second time the use of the word lamb. You, you encountered it first in this section in verse 9 where it said, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And again, you hear at the end of this section, verse 14, a reference to the twelve apostles of the lamb. I just want to point out to you that here in this, in this vision of the New Jerusalem, chapter 21, verse 9 through 22, 5, uh, you see references to the Lamb. And actually the Lamb is referred to, and this will not surprise you, seven times in this text. Seven is a symbol throughout uh, biblical literature and th throughout the book of Revelation for perfection. This will be the perfect, complete fellowship, reign, and rule of the Lamb. The Lamb is central to this picture. So you see these, you see these um, walls, you see these gates, uh, you see the names of the 12 tribes and the names of the 12 apostles on these, on these walls. Um, I think that's a way of saying that uh, all the people of God will be part of this new reality. That's why you see a reference to the 12 tribes and a reference to the 12 apostles, the Old Testament community of faith, the New Testament community of faith. So all the people of God will be part of this new reality, the new Jerusalem, both Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, you've seen this before in the book of Revelation. Uh, the 12 apostles here, I'm sure Judas is not one of them. 
them. But uh, you have um, Matthias became part of the twelve at the beginning of the book of Acts after the death of Judas, the betrayer. Uh, but the reference to the twelve apostles just reminds us that the church is based on the witness, the foundation of the twelve apostles. So here you see the walls, these gates. And as I mentioned, these gates will not be closed because there's no need for protection. Let's continue with verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. You, you saw this back in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, a measuring of the city. There it was an earthly Jerusalem probably, um, or the people of God on earth. The measuring of the city uh, implies a protection of the city, implies an ownership of the city. Someone has surveyed this city and they own this city. And of course that someone is God. So so uh, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod. This angel who spoke with John had a measuring rod of gold that was to measure this city, its gates and its walls. I want you to notice this city. It's mind-boggling. It's beyond almost believable. Uh, but the, the, the fact that's being portrayed here symbolically is beyond the beauty that's being portrayed here symbolically. Look at, look at verse 16. This city, the New Jerusalem, lies four square. Its length, the same as its width... And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. If you've ever wondered whether or not angels measure things the way we do, well, there you have it. Now you know. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear crystal. A few remarks on that passage. Um, you notice it is huge. The city is measured as 12,000 stadia. Um, that's a, about 1,400 miles. That is a massive size for a city. In the ancient world, um, the major cities of Alexandria and Babylon, for instance, only had a circumference of about nine miles. Here, this city is four square. It has 14, um, four, almost 1,400 miles, 12,000 stadia, uh, is the length of, of the sides of this city. Uh, you also notice the walls of this city, 144 cubits. That's not the length of the walls, that's the, that's the, the width of the walls. These are majestic walls. This is a majestic city. You know, when I think about the people in um, what we call the Holy Land reading this text for the first time, uh, they lived in a world where from Galilee to the Dead Sea was only about 60 miles. And here's this city being presented that um, is like 1,400 square miles. That really is mind-boggling, the size of this city. When Jesus said, in my Father's house, there's many dwelling places. Jesus really meant it. There's a lot of space in this city. The final kingdom, the eternal city of God. Um, it is a city we will be living in community with others. Uh, there will be people there that will surprise us, I am sure. There will be people there not of our tribe, I am sure. Uh, this is a massive city. Uh, that's why the measurements are given here. Uh, not so that you can just somehow um, take these measurements literally, but to see that it's the size, the majesty, 
this, just the overwhelming nature of this city. Uh, to show you that this is, again, you know this, that this is symbolic language, and you want to get behind the symbol to something even greater than the symbol, you notice it says um, that the wall was built of jasper, while the city, city was built of pure gold like clear glass. Well, you know, that which is extremely valuable on, on the earth, gold, for instance, is just building material in this city. So that tells you something else about this city. But you also notice the text says it's pure gold like clear glass. Well, that doesn't even make sense to us. We, we don't understand how gold can be like clear glass. Uh, so this is not an earthly substance. Uh, this is something that's beyond the earth. Uh, this city uh, that's built of pure gold like clear glass. So I hope that you can sort of envision what John is showing you, but realize that the reality is even far more beautiful than we can imagine here. Uh, look back at verse 19 as the brilliance of this city. And again, what makes this city brilliant is the radiance of God in this city. Look at verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. You're not going to be surprised that there's going to be 12 kinds of jewels here. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Um, you know, if you're really into gems or jewels, you probably can hang out this text for a long time, and, and you may find some tremendous uh, power of the symbols here. Uh, for most of us, we just look at this and we say, again, we're being reminded of the beauty and the brilliance of this city with all these jewels reflecting the brilliance of God. You notice that there are 12 there. Uh, this 12 sort of also points to completion. You also notice, if you think back to the Hebrew Bible, what you actually have here, uh, that these jewels that are adorning the, the wall of the city are the, are the same kind of 12 jewels that adorn the breastplate of the high priest in the temple during the Hebrew dispensation when there was an earthly temple. You can go back to Exodus 28 and read about the breastplate of the high priest. That's significant because when you see, as you've already seen, this is a massive city it's four square. I hope that you notice it's massive in size, but I hope that you also notice thus far, it is a perfect cube. I think one of the reasons it's a perfect cube, besides just pointing to its perfection, is the holiest place, the holy of holies of the temple, was built as a perfect cube. That place uh, in the earthly temple where the uh, Spirit of God resided was a perfect cube, the Holy of Holies. Um, it was a place only the high priest could enter into once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. The, the eternal city is going to be like uh, an eternal Holy of Holies, but we're all in it, not just the high priest in the days of the temple. You notice that it's adorned like the breastplate of the high priest of the temple. So again, you're seeing a lot of imagery that keeps taking you back to Jerusalem, taking you back to uh, Jerusalem, the holy city. It's here at the end of history that Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of peace that was established by God during the reign of King David, becomes 
what God wanted it to be in the first place. That's never really been. You see, it's this place where the presence of God resides in such brilliance that we can't even comprehend it. Uh, in our lives today. This is the eternal kingdom. This is the eternal kingdom that comes down from heaven, engulfs earth, and all of creation is participating in this eternal kingdom. And you see the brilliance of all of these jewels here. Um, it should really take our breath away. It, it, it should just overwhelm us with its beauty and remind us that it's a symbol and the beauty of the reality is even far more beautiful than this. This symbol can even help us imagine with our finite minds. Look at verse 22. John says, And I saw no temple in the city. Hmm, isn't that interesting? No temple in the city. Uh, the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of God. He sees no temple in the city because as I've already intimated, the whole city is the temple. And it says here in verse 22, I saw no city, I, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Um, the presence of God is going to be throughout this whole holy city. And that's why the need, there's no need for a temple in the midst of this city. You notice it says the presence of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Uh, here you see a clear depiction, as you do throughout the book of Revelation, of, of the unity of the Lamb and God here in this city. And uh, it's the radiance and the presence of God and the Lamb that makes this uh, a heavenly kingdom to us. And uh, you see it just inundating this city. There's nothing but the presence of God uh, here in this city. That's why there's no need for a temple to travel to in this city to experience the presence of God. Verse 23, And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Again, the brilliance of God, the brilliance of Christ. There's no need for a sun or a moon. Uh, there's no darkness here. There's no night here because the brilliance of God. Verse 24, by its light. These are interesting verses. By its light will the nations walk. The word nations there is just ethne. It just means the peoples of the earth. The peoples beyond the Jewish people. There's, the world is created into Jews and Gentiles, Jews and ethne, Jews and nations. Um, so you see here that nations and peoples beyond just the Jewish people will be part of this kingdom. And as a Gentile, I'm very grateful for that. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So all of the glory of this earth that's part of our age now will be emptied into the glory of this city. And we may have crowns, but we're going to cast them at his feet. And the only glory that will be here in this city will be the glory of, of Almighty God and the Lamb. And notice verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day. I've already mentioned that. You've got gates, but there's no need for protection here. And it goes on to say at the end of verse 25, and there will be no night there. There's no darkness there. There's something in the human spirit that brings us into this world being just a little afraid of the dark. Uh, that's why I think all children have some of that. Uh, there's something about darkness and night that is frightening to the human spirit. And there's something about darkness and light throughout the biblical literature that, that sometimes symbolizes life apart from God, separated from God. There will be no night here. 
ever because there'll just be the brilliance of God and the land. There'll be no danger here. You don't need to shut the gates of this city. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What beauty there may be, what glory there may be in history right now. Think about the most beautiful thing you can think of in creation. Think about the most beautiful thing you can think of as being created uh, by human ingenuity. All of that will be consumed, will be offered and become part of this, this eternal kingdom. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John wants to keep reminding us, as does the whole New Testament, that um, everyone doesn't automatically get to participate in the glory of God. God so esteems the human being, so gives dignity to the human being, so graces the human being, that human beings can choose to not live and die and spend eternity in fellowship with God. We've got to choose that. We've got to make our loyalty to God and not to the kingdoms of this world. So it's not automatic. Everybody that dies does not go to the light. Um, The New Testament's clear about that. Verse 27, I'll repeat, but nothing unclean Nothing that's not being cleansed by the blood of Christ, nothing that's not being cleansed by Jesus Christ will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those of us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, received the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ, right now here in this world, we are free from the guilt of our sin. We are progressively becoming free from the power of our sin. But one day in the eternal kingdom, we'll be, very, we'll be free from the very presence of sin because of the cleansing, redemptive work of the Lamb. Nothing unclean will enter. And again, the main thing that makes heaven and the eternal kingdom heavenly is the presence of God. The second greatest thing in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, is we'll no longer be plagued by sin like we are throughout this life. Nothing, nothing unclean will enter it. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Just keep going. Just pretend the big number 22 is not there. Sometimes when numbers were put in the Bible, uh, the numbers don't do a good job of uh, beginning and ending new, um, new chunks of thought. This text really continues for the first five verses of what we call chapter 22. Um, but there's a little change in theme here. So just continue as, as you hear John describing this new Jerusalem. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. I know that when we sing um, that beloved gospel hymn, Shall We Gather at the River, it says that the river flows by the throne of God. That's wrong. It doesn't flow by the throne of God. It, it significantly flows from the throne of God because that river symbolizes the life, the eternal, the heavenly, the divine life that God gives us. That's why it flows, according to the text, from uh, the throne of God. Notice again, the throne of God and of the Lamb. You see, you see how the two are united here. So this river, notice verse 2, flows through the middle of the street of the city. 
The river kind of flows right through the middle. There's no uh, bad side of the street. The river of life flows through the middle of the street. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Um, just want to call your attention to the fact that in chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam lost access to the tree of life. Here in the eternal kingdom, you're supposed to think Eden restored, Eden magnified and restored. We receive access again back to the tree of life. This tree of life is for the healing of the nations. This tree of life, which continues to yield its fruit each month, continues to fill us with the life that's going to be ours in Jesus Christ. That eternal life, that heavenly life, that divine life um, is going to be ours in Jesus Christ. We'll be granted access back to the tree of life. Uh, you see a return to the garden here at the end of history. Verse 3 of chapter 22 no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. The curse will be passed. The curse, the living as a result of the fall of humanity, the living uh, with sin as part of human nature, that will be passed. Uh, in a sense, this is almost a direct quotation from Zechariah 14, uh, 11, particularly the Greek version of Zechariah 14, 11, where it talks about in the end, uh, when the Messiah finishes the Messiah's work, the curse will be alleviated. And we know that when Christ came, he began to, to wear away the power of the curse. Well, when, the, when Jesus, Messiah, finishes his work, the curse will be completely eradicated. All sin will be done away with. And you notice here at the end of verse 3, it says what we're going to uh, be doing in this, in this eternal city. It says, and his servants will worship him. So you, we need to remember every time we gather for worship, and it's so painful not to be gathering for worship physically in, press, in, in person during these days of the coronavirus. But when we do gather for worship, and even when we're doing it now uh, via Facebook or the internet or Vimeo or television, we need to all, always remember we're worshiping the living God and we are preparing, we are practicing for eternity when we'll be lost in wonder, love, and praise in that eternal worship. Look at verse 4. In a lot of ways, verse 4 of chapter 22 is the consummation of the climax. It is in many ways the consummation of the whole Bible. It shows that which we seek after more than anything else. It shows the most important gift of the eternal kingdom. It's what we call in history the beatific vision. Look at verse 4. They will see his face. We will see the face of God. Moses was not allowed to see the face of God. We will see the face of God in this eternal intimacy with God. Don't know what all that means, but um, it is a beatific vision, a blessed vision. This is what we're after in life. We should be preparing for that day when we see the face of God and we will live forever in, in, engulfed in that beatific vision. You know, there's so much I'm looking forward to about the eternal kingdom. I do have loved ones that I'm looking forward to being, being reunited with in the eternal kingdom. That's the most important thing. 
That's not the most important thing about the eternal kingdom. Uh, I'm looking forward to being freed from the presence of sin. That is so amazing. But that's not the most important thing about the eternal kingdom. The most important thing is not only will God be there in the fullness of God's presence, we will see his face. You know, years ago, I was in a coliseum with 40,000 people uh, doing a worship service where Mother Teresa was present. And I, she was a diminutive, was a diminutive, small little lady, powerful lady anyway. But in that grand coliseum, I could hardly even see her down there uh, in, in, the, in the front, the center of that coliseum. We had uh, jumbotrons. We had big screens showing us. But again, that was just a glimpse of what was real down there on the stage. When it says we see the face of God, that means we're going to be close and personal. Don't know what all this means, but this is what life is all about. This is what this journey in earth and journey throughout the ages is all about. Preparing for this time, we will see the face of God. It says in verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Uh, this name on our foreheads means that all that we think, all that we are will be God. Uh, this name on our forehead just declares in a symbolic way, we belong to God. And we will know at that point, certainly more than we've ever known, that we belong to God and what all that means. They will see his face and his name, his spirit will be on their foreheads, will be in their minds. Verse 5, and this will conclude our text for today. And night will be no more. There will need no night of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they, this is everyone who's in Christ. This is you and me if we're in Christ. They will reign, rule reign forever and ever. That's the way history ends. That's the way the book of Revelation ends. From this point on the book of Revelation, we find just the epilogue, uh, the conclusion uh, sort of John's editorial remarks and some more remarks through the power of the Spirit from God uh, in this epilogue. We'll look at this epilogue next week and we'll conclude the book of Revelation and uh, I'll conclude our whole study of the book of Revelation uh, as we look um, at the epilogue, chapter 22, verses 6 through the end, verse 21. Um, thank you for sharing this time, time with me. This vision is so, so amazing. It almost doesn't harm to even offer human words uh, to explain, to editorialize, to interpret. Um, I hope that you know who you are in Christ, and I hope that you begin to have a fuller sensation or understanding of all that is prepared for you in Christ. Um, we'll talk some more next week. God bless you.